This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 377. This episode is brought to you by Revel Race Series. Revel is an incredibly fast and remarkably beautiful series of full and half marathons that take place in the most scenic U.S. locations. All the races feature a fast downhill slope and spectacular scenery. Register at runrevel.com with code MTA for $10 off. That's runrevel.com and use the code MTA for $10 off. This podcast is also brought to you by MetPro. You can speak with a metabolic expert about your current habits, lifestyle needs, and get actionable steps toward achieving your goals, whether that is to lose weight or to change your body composition. Just go to metpro.co forward slash MTA, metpro.co forward slash MTA. Welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we empower you to dig deep and go the distance. I'm Trevor. And I'm Angie. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Stacey Sims, physiologist, nutrition scientist, and expert on sports performance for athletes who are peri and post-menopause. And don't forget, as a member of the Academy, you can get all of our back podcast episodes, training plans, courses for going deeper, and more. Find out how to join when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. All right, good to be behind the microphone again. We are very excited to have Dr. Stacy Sims back on the podcast. I know when we had her on the show last year, just we had so much great feedback. She is just a wealth of knowledge. That's why, Angie, I felt really bad after we had spoken with her for about 45 minutes and she was throwing down pure gold. And then I looked and I noticed that I forgot to hit record. <laughs> <laughs> After 12 years of podcasting, you think I would know how to do that. But seriously, though, first time it's ever happened, I had to break in and I'm like, you guys are going to kill me, but we have not been recording this whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, And she was such a good sport. We rescheduled the following week and she's like, I don't care. I love talking about this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, keeping it real. (laughs) So anyway... This episode is also just as good as the one that we lost, so I know you guys are going to enjoy it. Before we jump in, Angie, what is going on out there in MTA land? Anything new and exciting? Of course. We'd like to say congratulations to Mary, who has been working with MTA coach Athena. Mary set a 12-minute PR at the Ventura Marathon with a time of 4 hours, 14 minutes, and 38 seconds. Nice. And we heard from Luis. He says, I finished my Matterhorn Runner's High Challenge, and it feels good to look like a ninja. He's referring to the little avatar that you can change in the run tracker. tracker. He says, I want to dedicate my last two runs to my MTA coach, Cindy. I'm almost done with the 1,500-mile challenge, and I'm waiting for the next challenge. Yeah, that's awesome. He uh, lives in the Azores, the, the islands owned by Portugal, and just keeps himself fit and motivated by doing our virtual challenges. And now is working with a coach. And we just released the 2,000-mile uh, challenge. We had so many runners ask us to do one because a lot of people in our community, like Angie, do 2,000 miles or more a year. Now, for me, it's going to take me maybe two years to, <laughs> to get to that point. But um, another challenge, and the medal is inspired by the Great Wave off Kanagawa by the Japanese artist Hokusai. The Great Wave of Kanagawa. Check it out on our website and look for the Social Distancing Run 2000 Mile Challenge. This note comes from Marty. He says, hello, MTA family. I ran the Black Canyon 60K over the weekend. Special thanks to MTA coach Lynn for all her help crewing for me. I faced many challenges due to the weather, nausea and vomiting, and not having my headlamp and glasses with me. Wow. Despite everything, I managed a one hour plus 60K PR and I knocked off state number 11. This also provided many good lessons to take into my 50 miler next month. Wow, you just going gung-ho. That's right. It's been so fun following along with his progress and everything that he's accomplishing. And this is a letter that came from Lauren from Texas. And this is a letter that she wrote to MTA coach Athena that we got permission to share. She says, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you how grateful I am to have gotten to work with and learn from you. So much of what I've gained from our time together goes beyond running. And it's hard to put into words just how impactful you've been in my life since we connected last year. 
When I reached out to MTA for coaching, I never imagined I'd end up getting connected with someone who not only provided excellent training and guidance, but also served as a key role model, a strong, powerful female athlete. With the aid of your accountability, I've been able to embrace the importance of consistency and discipline and enjoy the freedom of adaptability which those allow. Thank you for helping me cultivate a mindset of growth, commitment, and possibility. Thank you for showing me what it means to be a strong, resilient female athlete. Beyond grateful, Lauren. Wow, that's a tremendous letter. Thank you, Lauren, for sharing that with us. There's so many things that I like in there. You know, she says how her coach was an example of a strong, powerful female athlete. That ties in well with, you know, our episode today because Dr. Stacy Sims is all about, you know, helping women navigate through premenopause, postmenopause, and become strong female athletes. Or continue to be strong female athletes. Yeah, exactly. She also mentions the freedom of adaptability that comes from consistency and discipline. That word freedom really resonates with me because that's probably what drives my running. For me, it is like a sense of freedom to be able to, you know, have a healthy physical body, to do all the stuff I enjoy. Also, the freedom to, you know, explore nature, to uh, push through hard things, to travel, to races. So, yeah, love it. I really like where she talks about um, how Coach Athena helped her cultivate a mindset of growth, commitment, and possibility. I can resonate with that because running has done those things for me, realizing that I am capable of so much more than I thought I was. And when you commit yourself to something, it opens up all kinds of possibility. Yeah, it reminds me of the Carol Dweck framework of a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. You know what I'm talking about, Angie? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we do have an awesome team of coaches that we've curated because of their knowledge and expertise and also the fact that they lead by example. You can learn more about our coaching over at marathontrainingacademy.com forward slash coaching. Super congrats to all of you out there just taking action in your goals, running races, becoming a stronger version of yourself. We hope you enjoyed this episode with uh, Dr. Stacy Sims. So Angie, why did you want to have Stacy back on the podcast? Well, when we talked to her the first time, we focused mostly on the aspect of women are not small men. So the differences in training and nutrition for women, mostly during their reproductive years. Um, but also there's a whole demographic of athletes in the perimenopause and beyond menopause phase of life that I think often gets ignored. And I'd recently been taking her excellent course, Menopause for Athletes, and both Coach Athena and Coach Nicole have also taken this course. It really motivated me to want to have Dr. Stacy Sims back on the podcast to really delve into this issue further. Yep, she is a researcher, innovator, and entrepreneur in human performance, especially sex differences in training, nutrition, and environmental conditions. She has worked as an exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist at Stanford University. She lives in New Zealand, which made it even a little more difficult to coordinate our <laughs> interviews. So we appreciate her working with us. She's author of the book Roar, which I know a lot of you have read. And the upcoming book, which is called Next Level, Your Guide to Kicking Ass, Feeling Great, and Crushing Goals Through Menopause and Beyond. Awesome. So here's our conversation with Dr. Stacy Sims. Well on my way, well on my way. Okay, we're on the podcast now with Dr. Stacy Sims, joining us for the second time in like two weeks because <laughs> <laughs> first time we uh, we got like 45 minutes into it and then I figured out that I forgot to hit record at the beginning. Keeping things real. <laughs> That's all right. So. These things happen sometimes. <laughs> yes, they do. Actually, the first time we had you on, it was a few months ago, and we kind of focused on the women are not small men aspect of you know nutrition for athletes and things like that. This time, I, I kind of wanted to take it in a slightly different direction and talk more about the perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause phase of an athlete's life. So I think it'd be a good idea to start with maybe some definitions for those, because I know some people are going to be kind of thinking, what's the Wondering. difference? Yeah. Yeah. So if you would jump in and kind of share your definitions for them. Yeah. So um, everyone puts the whole category of perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause into just menopause. But we know that menopause is one point on the calendar that marks 12 months of no periods. So we often say it's our birthday of menopause where, yay, we've reached it. And the period leading up to that, no pun intended, is... Um, <laughs> 
perimenopause. So it starts early 40s onwards. And this is where our hormones start to change ratios. We start to see changes in body composition, sleeping, mood, and we can't, well, a lot of women are like, what's going on? I don't understand because it's not on the radar that this is happening. And then postmenopause is a time point after that one point in time called menopause. And it's the biological state for the rest of your life. And we often only hear about menopause being postmenopause. We don't hear about all the lead in, into that one point in time. Yeah, 100%. And I feel like I, there's probably some athletes out there like me who I just feel like I'm kind of getting a handle on what it's like to train and fuel appropriately with my menstrual cycle. And now I'm going into perimenopause period. And so it's like a whole new framework. It's, it feels like it's kind of not fair as women that we have to always be like adjusting and... <laughs> I know. It does feel that way, right? So, um, but I mean, it's across the board. You hit puberty and you're all of a sudden having to face this whole cadre of new things. And Little boys just are like, sweet, now all of a sudden I get stronger and fitter and faster, right? And then you get exactly. into your reproductive years and there's all those issues and you get into pregnancy or and that and then you have perimenopause and then menopause, always adjusting. Men have it super easy. Yes. <laughs> I'm currently taking your menopause for athletes course and it's super helpful. And it seems like there is really not a ton of information out there that specifically addresses the whole perimenopause, postmenopause period, specifically relating to athletes. Mm -hmm. um, can you kind of tell us why there is that dearth of information? And obviously, you're doing a lot to address it and, in a very helpful way. <laughs> yeah, um, a lot of it is a sociocultural aspect where we think about how women have been excluded from research studies anyway. And Part of it is the idea that men are the default, the cis male in particular is the default. So it's always a recruitment and the design of the studies with the eye of the cis male. And when we start looking at premenopausal women and we see the exclusion of that or women are only included in the low hormone phase. Um, matter of fact, I read a peer review paper where they said that um, out of the 36 participants, three were women and they threw the data out because there wasn't enough to be able to discern what the differences were because of, of the apparent sex differences. And I was like, did you one, not recruit hard enough or two, not even consider taking that data and putting it into a case study in your report? I mean, this right. is 2022. So that stuff is still happening. So then when we get to perimenopause, it becomes even more complicated because we often see in research studies, the cutoff for the upper age is 40. Because now people are like, hey, wait a second, not only do we have menstrual cycle consider, well, now we have these fluctuations in hormones or irregularities in the menstrual cycle where it's short or long or we see different bleeding patterns. And if you're not sick or sedentary, then forget about having research done for you for the most part, unless you have someone that's an advocate and really wants to push for it. And then we see a lot of research in the postmenopause state because that's where, with the flatline in hormones, we see an uptick in public burden diseases. So we see increased cardiovascular risk, we see metabolic syndrome, we see osteoporotic um, issues and bone stress issues, we see um, sarcopenia. So all of these things that are drain on the healthcare system. So people are doing a lot of research into that, and especially in the sedentary and overweight obese population. So there's this whole big area of research and there's all of us in there. They're like, hey, wait a second. So the lucky thing is there are a few groups of people that are doing research in the active female population. I was on a meeting earlier this morning and one of my PhD students had to go to Copenhagen to finish her PhD because of COVID. And she's catching us up on what she'd been doing. And she did a switch into looking at uh, training cardiovascular health in peri and postmenopausal women. And I was like, oh, my God, so exciting. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so there's lots of cool stuff down the track on that. And, of course, she comes from, like, the athletic background. So she's actually doing research and looking at time course differences of training of early versus late menopause. So that's my divergence and excitement of the morning. So, yes, yes. there is stuff coming out. And so the stuff that we do know is really compelling. We start seeing what is out there because the automatic response for most women is to go on menopause hormone therapy, which is the automatic response for younger women when they come in with some kind of menstrual cycle irregularity is to go on, on the OC or some kind of hormonal contraception. 
So the messaging across the board of the lifespan really isn't changed. If you have menstrual cycle dysfunction or hormonal differences, here, we're going to give you a synthetic. But now that we're digging in and understanding, there are differences that we can do with our training and nutrition to support our bodies, how those hormones used to support us. So this is what the big push is now in that active space is looking at changing your training and changing your nutrition so that you get similar, if not better responses to what you're doing to be able to mitigate body fat gain, to maintain lean mass, to keep cognition reaction, maintain power and speed, and all the things that we want to do when we're active, competitive, age group, whatever athlete that you are in this period of time. So you brought up a few things that I, you know, are a concern to, of course, me and women who are my age and beyond, things like less muscle mass, reduced bone density, weight gain. What are some things that particularly runners can do to offset some of those unwanted changes that come with aging? So the first two things I always point out is drop the volume, increase the intensity, and resistance training. So when I talk about resistance training, I'm not talking about body weight stuff. I'm not talking about doing um, 10 to 12 reps of light dumbbells. I'm talking about getting in and really doing neuromuscular work with heavy lifting. We need that heavy lifting for the neuromuscular stimulus so that we're able to recruit more fibers per contraction for a strong contraction and to maintain that, that brain muscle connection. We also need to have that stimulus to get a strong enough signal to keep the lean mass we have and to build lean mass. So that's super critical. And a lot of women, especially runners and cyclists, are afraid that they will put on bulk, but you can't. Like it's almost impossible to put on bulk. Um, you see younger women who are afraid of putting on bulk unless they're focused specifically on eating and eating and eating and eating, not doing any cardio and just lifting like there's no tomorrow, that's how you put on bulk. But when you're looking at the older group and it's really hard to put on muscle mass, the strength development ends up being that. It's pure strength. You're not going to put on bulk. Um, and then that feeds forward into stronger running, more economy of movement, um, being able to power over hills. And then we talk about what the quote, quote cardiovascular section looks like. It's dropping the long, slow stuff because our bodies are already inherently really good at going long and slow. And that's not a hormonal effect. That's a, an XX from birth effect within our muscles. So we look and we don't need to build that. We don't need to build that long base. We need to look at how are you going to maintain power and speed. So we have to look at doing more high intensity polarized training. And not only does it help us with our performance, but it also helps with the health aspects of maintaining blood glucose control being able to have some epigenetic changes within the muscle so that we are able to use carbohydrate and store carbohydrate better. And again, it also maintains that fast explosive power that we lose, which you need when you have the repetitive motion, especially if you are doing any kind of undulating terrain as a runner. So it's really looking at the cadre of things that you have in your training basket, polarizing the training and adding in that lifting. That's really interesting. Now, I know I've heard you say before that high intensity interval training, jump training is super important too for maintaining, you know, bone mass and also kind of helping recruit those muscle fibers. Um, can you talk about maybe why running isn't enough? Yeah. So when we look at running, people are like, oh, it's a high impact. So there's a lot of stress coming through the skeletal um, system, but it's not multidirectional. We need multi-directional stress in order to create a shear stress and a torsion within the, the bone to give the signaling to actually be strong. Because if you just have that one repetitive motion of running, it's not that multi-directional stress and the body gets used to it. It doesn't give the signaling that we need to have really good, strong bones throughout the entire structure. So when people are, oh, well, I do weight bearing, I do running, I do walking, it's not enough. We need that 10 minutes, three times a week of jump training. It can be jumping off a box, doing hops up the stairs, even jump roping. But if we really want to get the benefit out of jump training, then we're looking at plyometric work. So you're skipping as a warm up. You might be doing box jumps. You might be doing um, a set of heavy lifting and then followed up with a series of burpee box jump overs or something like that. So it's still that high intensity, but it's that explosion and that power so that we get that for the bone. But again, it also triggers the muscle itself to open up different 
gates to be able to pull carbohydrate in without insulin, which is something that our bodies need as we get older and become more insulin resistant. So a moment ago, you said polarize your training. What do you mean by that? Um, so, so many women and men, but especially endurance athletes spend so much time in that gray area, that moderate intensity zone in that, mm. you know, 70 to 80% zone where it's too hard to be easy as a recovery. And it's too easy to be hard for the adaptations we want. So when we talk about polarizing our training, we mean super, super easy for recovery or, you know, a little bit of time on the feet, but the highest you get on a rating of perceived exertion scale of one to 10 might be five. And then when we're talking about the upper end, that's like when you're doing full gas, where you're doing that rating perceived exertion nine to 10 in your intervals and bring it right back down to that really low, low, low intensity for recovery, trying to stay out of that moderate intensity zone as much as you can. And it's really hard. It's hard if you have been in that moderate intensity zone for so long, because you think you're going hard, but you're not really. If you can do, uh, you know, 10 reps of something, then you are not doing high intensity. We're looking at that top end where when you first start doing it, it might be four sets of 30 seconds and then you're completely gassed and you're like, okay, I need to work on that. So it, it's, it's kind of a mind shift and I get people to wear heart rate monitors for the reason I want them to understand what going easy means. And like you mm. said, people often think they're going easy and they're actually not going easy. Right. It's kind of like that, that gray zone that just that comfortable, you just kind of get in that gear that you're used to. And if you actually look at your heart rate monitor and you realize like, whoa, I'm actually not keeping things easy. It's <laughs> Yeah, I know. You're like I'm going out for this crazy run. You're like, la la la. And then it <laughs> might be like an undulation or you might see some friends or it might be a route that you normally do. And suddenly you're picking it up and you don't really realize it. So I always tell people, you want to be embarrassingly slow so power walkers can pass you. And there is no shame in that because you have your agenda where you're going out to do easy, easy recovery. Um, or if you're an ultra runner and it's your long run day, you're keeping it super easy so that you're building a little bit more time on the feet and that endurance and stress resilience that you need for ultra. It's not about aerobic conditioning. It's not about not getting the fitness part. It's about that stress resilience for time on the feet. Hmm. Do you do ultras? I did ultras back in the day, way <laughs> back in the day. Um, yeah, I've uh, run a few 50K and 50 milers, and I was a pacer cool. for Western States 100. Um, when Luann Parks was out winning everything in the early, early days, so I paced mm -hmm. her for a few of the big ones. I was in my early 20s, and I was living in Redding, California, because I took a job there, not really realizing, and there's nothing else to do but run. So that's <laughs> when I picked up ultra running. And then I moved yeah. back to San Francisco and, um, yeah, didn't do any more ultra running. But it comes on the backside of doing 20 marathons before I was 20. So mm. it wow. was like, yeah, yeah. I don't think I've heard that story. How did you get into doing marathons so early in life? Uh, my father being military and PT and running. And my mom was a runner before it was super popular. And then I just started running because it was a way to get away from my sister. Um, being an older sister and time alone. Right. And mm. then when I went to university, I gave up running cross country and started rowing, but there's a lot of running in crew because you have to be fit. So the lightweight boat, we had a, what we called a gamers club. So we would just do something just on the auspice of doing something. So we'd always like try to run a few marathons a year and get together. And then I made it a goal to run 20 marathons before I was 20 as being part of the gamers club. So I did that and then I got into ultra running and then I got into triathlon. So I've done the whole high volume stuff and now yes. I just want to be fast. <laughs> it's, <laughs> oh. it's hard when you're old to be fast, but that's the goal. <laughs> it's like you have to like reframe what fast is as I think as you enter each new decade not to say that a person can't set PRs as right. we age but can totally happen it's relative it's, it's relative, relative right yeah 100 <laughs> percent yeah I've seen you talk about following a plant-centered diet um, can you talk about what the difference between plant-centered eating is and being plant-based and why you find that beneficial 
So plant-centered is where you look and you're like, most of my food is going to come from plants, but you're not being exclusionary in your other food groups. So you still are doing some um, organic lean meat. You might be doing some um, wild-caught fish. You might be doing some dairy, but you're very conscious of where that food is coming from and it's all high quality. So it's not the processed like craft cheese on on a cracker that you see some people do. So you're, you're very aware of where that food's coming from. And when we talk about being fully plant-based, this is where you are in some scope of the word vegan or vegetarian. And the benefit really of being plant-centered is that you're always gravitating towards a lot of fibrous fruit and veg. And it's very beneficial for feeding the deep gut microbiome. So we're not talking about the upper intestines. We're talking about the lower intestines. And it's super important to have a lot of diversity there because the little bugs and their metabolites that they have when they feed on the fiber is it produces things like brain neurotrophic factor, BDNF, super important for brain tissue and health. It helps with stress through the HPA access. It helps modulate estrogen production and it will help with estrone conversion to estradiol, which is what we need when we hit um, postmenopause because estrone, which is a really weak estrogen, it becomes the dominant estrogen when we're postmenopausal and can have some negative effects. So we want something that's going to help convert that back to estradiol. So it's really, really important to take care of that deep gut. So we start moving towards that plant-based and it's just natural to have more of those fruit and veg than we're creating that diversity that we need. And the other aspect of not being completely um, vegan is then you have a wider variety of different proteins to choose from. Yeah, that makes sense. I I suppose probably living in New Zealand, you have higher quality of some of the dairy and meat available than, you know, we do in the States, you know, not the factory farms, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, we don't have the feedlots or anything like that. And that was one of like, full disclosure, I've been plant based since I was 14. Wow. Because in San Francisco, and then you have to drive to LA, you drive past the feedlots on the five. And the stench and the sound is horrific. And I went to a pig slaughterhouse for a field trip when I was a sophomore in high school. And so that kind of like really did me in. And so understanding where your food comes from has been a driving force my whole life, really. And the U.S. has a very interesting messed up food system. So, yeah. But we have the food pyramid. (laughs) Yeah, we do, don't we? And we have the, what's the new plate that they have? Yeah, yeah. my plate. Yeah, my plate. That's it. I like how the, the food pyramid, like the whole base of the pyramid was just bread. Yeah. Like mainly bread. I know. Remember that? That's right. Yep. And fats and oils at the very top. And it's like, hmm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation thus far. Quick break to thank our podcast sponsor, the Revel Race Series. We're so excited to have Revel as a sponsor of the podcast. Angie set her PR at a Revel Race. I was there. I saw it. I ran the half. (laughs) That's right. I've done two different Revel events. And let me tell you, they just put on a phenomenal race experience. They're known for their incredibly fast and remarkably beautiful series of races, um, both full and half marathons that take place in some of the most scenic places in the United States. All the races feature a fast downhill slope and spectacular scenery. Yeah, you've probably heard of the Revel Rockies uh, in Denver, Colorado. It's taking place this year on June 4th. Price increases March 16th. So if you're hearing this in time, hustle over there. Sign up for the Revel Rockies. It goes through the beautiful Rocky Mountains. It's close to Denver. The weather's nice that time of year for a little vacation out in Colorado. Hey, there's quite a few good reasons to go to Colorado, <laughs> I happen to know. <laughs> That's right. So this is an excellent destination race, and a high percentage of people qualify for Boston at Revel. Angie. <laughs> That's right. So let gravity help you out on your first marathon or a marathon that you're trying to PR. Register at runrevel.com. Use the code MTA for $10 off. That's runrevel.com. Use the code MTA for $10 off. And thanks also to our faithful sponsor, MetPro. You can talk to one of their nutrition coaches on the phone for a free consultation at metpro.co forward slash MTA. That's right. As many of you know, I've been working with MetPro Coach, and prior to starting to work with them, at the end of 2018, I had been coming off some hormonal imbalances 
and really was struggling with the way my nutrition was working, or I should say not working with my marathon training. And I had a significant amount of weight that I needed to lose to get back into marathon shape. And it's just been a phenomenal experience. It's really taught me the importance of eating before I run, especially a workout that's going to demand a lot of my body and then also fueling right afterwards. And you'll hear Dr. Stacy Sims talk about that in this episode, how important it is that you're fueling your body appropriately so that you can run quality workouts and you can hit that strength training and maintain that muscle mass, especially for aging women. So check them out at metpro.co forward slash MTA. Tell them we sent you. If you decide to work with one of their coaches, you'll get $500 off. Metpro.co forward slash MTA. I know you've stated that post-workout fueling matters more for women than it does for men. Um, So how common is it for women to underfuel? And what should we be aiming for in terms of what to eat and when, you know, to really hit that post-workout window? Yeah, so the underfueling part is so predominant in so many women, regardless of age. We see it really start at puberty, where you have body composition changes and girls don't want to eat in front of their friends. And so there's like the restriction. You'll see a lot of trendy diets that are exclusionary in food groups. So that becomes an issue. So when we talk about underfueling, it's almost endemic in society. And then we put it into the athletic world, and it can be intentional or unintentional. Unintentional tends to be the bigger problem because of work and school-related issues where you don't have time to eat or you're bookending your calories on either end of the day because the day itself is so busy. So the underfueling is interesting in the fact that when we talk about it and you aren't bringing in enough calories, but you are fueling in and around your training, you can offshoot some of the negative aspects of it. So when we talk about under fueling or being undernourished, we're in a low energy availability state. And we know that you have your resting metabolic rate, and this is how many calories you need just to lie on the couch and watch Netflix, or maybe not even turn the TV on. But as soon as you get up to turn the TV on and move around your house, your body needs more calories. Then when you get out and you do all your other things, you need a little bit more calories. So then when you add training onto that, you need even more. And a lot of women who are working with coaches who are unaware of it or they're following some kind of diet might think that 2,000 calories is enough calories for the day, but it's not. When you start looking at all of the things that you have to do, especially as a runner, then you are significantly underfueling if you're hitting that market like, oh, I'm going to hold off between 1,800 and 2,000 calories. Because that is the general recommendation for the sedentary woman that doesn't do anything, right? So we start looking at what someone who might run five miles a day, right? So if we're saying the woman is 5'6", maybe 130 pounds, runs five miles a day, her resting metabolic rate might be around 14 or 1500 calories. Then her daily tasks of getting up, getting kids ready for school or getting herself ready for work going to work, walking around, that kind of stuff, it's another five or 600 calories. So you're already up to the 2000 mark. Then you look at running. You're putting in your five mile run. And if we're saying it's interval run, then you're looking at another five to 600 calories just to cover what you were doing in the run, but not to actually get the adaptations. So we're already up to that 25, 2600 calorie mark. And then if you want the adaptations, in order to have adaptations, you have to have an abundance of fuel. So that Mm. means adding another 100 to 150 calories. So we're looking at someone who's doing a five-mile tempo run in a day with a busy life up around that 25 to to 2,800 calorie mark. So most women out there probably listen to this and be like, what? No way. If I were to eat that much, I would gain weight. But this is the thing. If you are under fueling and or not fueling in and around your training and you start eating more, your body will hold on to it for a temporary time as it's refueling and holding onto water and learning that it's okay because there's more fuel coming in. It's a signal to the brain because there are two areas in the woman's brain in the hypothalamus that is responsible for appetite control as well as endocrine control. So that's kispeptin neurons, whereas men only have one area because they don't have a menstrual cycle or have to have an LH surge and and estrogen progesterone, right? So when women start to drop below a specific carbohydrate threshold, that gets downregulated. And when that gets downregulated, we start to see resting metabolic rate go down. 
even after four days of misstepping your calories. So when women are talking about how do I eat and what do I eat, we have to be very specific because the timing is so important. If we're looking at training first thing in the morning, you need to have something small before you go. And it could be 150 calories if that. Um, you do your training, come home, you have breakfast, and then you're looking at even protein distribution every meal throughout the day. So you're not bookending your calories and you're giving your body the fuel it needs when it's under stress. So that's around training and it's during the day when your body's under a lot of stress. And that will allow your body to understand that it has adequate fuel to adapt, to be able to give you the fitness gains that you want as well as keep your immune system up, as well as keep your um, endocrine system healthy so that you are resilient to daily stress. But when we see women who do fasted training because they get up super early and they just hit the door and out the door, or they're specifically following intermittent fasting or some other kind of diet trend where they're doing the bulk of their physical activity without fuel, maybe delaying their food intake post because it might not be in their eating window or they get home in the door, shower, have to get out the door again and they forget to eat. And they're delaying their food intake to later. So you have this huge amount of time where the body's in a breakdown state. You get up first thing in the morning, you don't have anything, cortisol is elevated. You have a higher baseline level of cortisol, especially when you get into perimenopause. We just have a higher natural baseline of cortisol. Then you go training. You might not be able to hit the metrics that you need to. So you stay in that moderate intensity zone instead of either the really high or the really low, which then again produces more cortisol and doesn't really give you the signaling for any kind of change. And then you're delaying food intake when your body is like, wait, I really need something to recover and repair. So you stay in even longer catabolic state. All this feeds back to the hypothalamus, to the kisspeptin, to conserve, conserve, conserve. So we start seeing that downregulation of the resting metabolic rate, a little bit of thyroid dysfunction. We start to see increase in belly fat, lots of fatigue, mood changes, and people are like, what's going on? And if we were just to fuel in and around our training, it would just give so many more benefits and we wouldn't get into that downward spiral. You pretty much just described my, what my late 30s were like, where I was running fasted, not being you know, smart about my refueling and going long periods of time without eating and then like feeling like I was so, so starving that I would just eat a ton to try to make up the calories. And, you know, it basically led to a hormonal imbalance, yeah. which took a lot of time to dig out of that hole. Um, so now Trevor persecutes me because I eat like a hobbit, like every three hours. I'm like, okay, Perfect. I need my protein, my carbs, my fat, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and when you, when you learn what it means to be hungry, because a lot of women have misstep and they don't know those hunger cues anymore. So when you actually learn what it means to be hungry, then you're like, okay, I need to eat. But so many women don't know that. They're like, oh, I'm really tired by the end of the day and I'm grumpy. I'm like, when was the last time you had something to eat? Oh, I ate at like lunchtime and now it's six o'clock. It's like, wait, no, you're hungry. That's what that means. So we need to reteach you what it means to be hungry. Yes. I saw a meme the other day. It says, when I say I'm hungry, in 27 minutes, I'm going to be a totally different person. Yeah. <laughs> that was like, yep. That's- yeah. It's yeah. like the Snickers commercial. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I've seen Angie get so hangry that when she finally sits down to eat, she doesn't even enjoy eating. She's like, I'm hungry and I'm so hungry I can't even eat right now. I like rage eating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like people say, I'm, I'm too tired to go to bed. Yeah. 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 Uh huh. Let's just get you there and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, kind of following this nutritional vein here, I've seen that you say that iron deficiency in female athletes can be a huge issue. I know it's one thing I've struggled with as well. Um, can you tell us what are some of the reasons for it and what people can do to bring their iron levels up? Yes. So iron is interesting because it actually is driven by an inflammatory response. So if we're looking at women who train and we have inflammation that occurs as a byproduct of exercise, we have an increased amount of inflammation for three to six hours after we train. And during that time, we have a um, hormone called hepcidin or hepcidin that comes up. And hepcidin, when it's up, prevents your body from absorbing iron. 
So if we look at what's happening with iron and iron intake, especially in female endurance athletes, we are losing um, red blood cells through running because of the pounding and the breakdown of that menstrual cycle. We also have um, episodes of underfueling, so maybe not getting enough iron in. And then we have areas of inflammation. So our training increases inflammation. When we hit perimenopause, we have a greater systemic inflammation because of the change over the hormones and a higher baseline of cortisol. So inflammation becomes a significant contributor to iron deficiency. We can have iron deficiency with and without anemia. So you might come back and you're on the low end of normal for iron, but you're still exhibiting some of the uh, iron deficiency symptoms, but your doctor can't necessarily do anything about it because you're on the low end of normal. And if you're on that low end of normal and you start taking iron supplements, if you're not paying attention to when you take it, you're not ever going to get on top of it. And if you start throwing back iron supplements without really understanding how to supplement, then you can end up with iron overload syndrome, which means you feel like you have anemia, but you don't. You just end up with too much iron, which gives you the same fatigue factors as being iron deficient. So if we look at, at how to really supplement, if you are naturally cycling, then what we say is you want to take your first iron supplement pill on the first day of bleeding. And then you take one every other day until ovulation. And the reason for that is your hepcidin is naturally low when you are bleeding because your body's like, I'm losing blood. I need to absorb more iron to produce red cells. And you want to take it every other day so your body has the ability to absorb it and understand that it needs it. If you take it every day, then your body can say, wait, that's too much. Hepcidin comes up. You also mm -hmm. want to take it in the morning because hepcidin is naturally lower in the morning preferably before training. But if you can't do it before training, then you take it at least six hours after training. Okay. And take it with vitamin D or have a really good vitamin D3 supplement that you're taking because vitamin D3 is essential for iron absorption and use. When we get to perimenopause and postmenopause, we see that there's a higher incidence of anemia in late perimenopause and early postmenopause because we've had this inflammatory response and when you're exercising, especially in the late perimenopause, early postmenopause, your inflammation factors stay elevated for almost 24 hours. So you have a very significant time where your body's under stress with inflammation. So this is where you really have to plan, where am I going to be supplementing or where am I going to be eating my iron-rich foods? Definitely before training to be able to get a handle on your body's ability to absorb iron. Now, I, I've heard that tea and coffee can um, inhibit absorption of iron. So it seems kind of tricky because a lot of people use those in the morning, you know, to get themselves going. And if, if it's interfering with their iron, I don't know. How do you handle that? I know. So it is one of those things, right? So I am specific that I'll take it at night. Like okay. if I have to choose, right? And I know that hepcidin naturally is up a little bit more at night. But if I train in the morning and my coffee's in the morning, then I know that I'm going to have the least amount of systemic inflammation towards the evening or at night. So I'll take it at night. Okay. That makes sense. So one thing I wanted to talk about was stress incontinence, because I know this is something that affects women of all ages and it's something that doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, so how prevalent is it and what advice do you have for women who are dealing with this issue? Because I know probably when we were talking about like the jump you know, the jump training, they're like, oh, oh lots of know, women. No, that sounds, prob that sounds yeah. problematic. <laughs> yeah. It's the same as like at the gym right before a jump rope session, all the moms run or like all the women are running <laughs> to the bathroom. Exactly. It's, it's primarily because the pelvic floor is a muscle. And if you've had a kid vaginally, you have to retrain and it's not just ke kegels. And as we get into um, peri and postmenopause and we're losing muscle mass, we're also losing muscle function, including pelvic floor function. So working with a specific um, physical therapist or physiotherapist who knows pelvic floor health, then you can retrain the muscle and get it super strong um, so that you are reducing the incontinence issues. Part of it also is learning how to breathe and engage that muscle. So doing something like child's pose and learning how to belly breathe, but also engage the pelvic floor as a start, because we also tend to lose that mind-muscle connection, especially if you had vaginal childbirth. So mm -hmm. it's, it's important, again, for that mind-body connection. And if you're having significant issues, 
super helpful to just have one or two sessions with a, a physio that is a pelvic floor specialist because they can give you ideas. They can give you exercises to do because um, you're right. Not very many people talk about it, but it is something that's super prevalent. Yeah. And I feel like just so women know that a lot of a lot of people deal with it um, and it's not something to be embarrassed about. There's you know a solution. Um, the good news is that it is a muscle and that you can train it and get it stronger and yep. <laughs> hopefully reduce those problems. Yeah. Cause you don't want to be 90 year, years old in like a nursing home and you're like, Oh wait, I should have done those kegels and those pelvic floor exercises 20 years ago. Right. right? So you're saying it just gets worse. Yeah. Oh yeah. With age across the board, because you lose muscle function and muscle mass with age, but men age in a linear fashion where women have this discernible aging point when they hit perimenopause. So it's a time and a point where things start to noticeably break down a lot faster and you're ending up with sore joints, you're ending up with soft tissue injuries, you're ending up with stress incontinence. And it's just all of a sudden you go from like you're 42, 43, everything's fine. Then you hit 45, you're like, what is going on? And it's because (laughs) of these hormone shifts and how much they affect every system of the body. Wow. So- it's interesting that you would say that women do not age linearly like men do. No. And when you look at the aging research and they are looking primarily at like sarcopenia, when do they start looking? They start looking in the 60s plus for men, start looking at hormone dysfunction and low testosterone. You start seeing that in the late 50s, early 60s. So the aging research, early aging for men is around 60. And then when they start putting women in, they say elderly women in the research studies, then they're throwing them in at 70 and forgetting this whole time point where all of these changes are happening leading up to the 70s. So when we start looking at that earlier research, we start seeing all of these, quote, age-related changes that happen with these hormone shifts because you have uh, anabolic resistance and that happens with estrogen dropping. And we normally hear about anabolic resistance in 60-plus-year-old men. We start seeing onset of cardiovascular issues, insulin resistance, um, bone stress and and osteoporosis issues. All of these things that are happening in the late 40s, early 50s and perimenopause, we see that in men who are in their 60s plus. So women are not aging in a linear fashion. They're fine and then boom, hit with all this stuff. And then there's a downward sigmoidal curve before they start aging like men. Hmm. One thing I love about you putting out so much great information is that you say that, you know, in the perimenopausal phase, we can be preparing and putting some some things in place so that we can be healthier and stronger through postmenopause. So it's not like you just have to be like a victim on this roller coaster of aging. There are a lot of things that you can do to make it as smooth as possible. Obviously not without bumps, but <laughs> Oh no. Yeah, because when we see like what's happening, especially with body composition, we see that most of the changes in body composition occur in the four to five years before that one point in time menopause. So this is where, you know, I'm sure you guys have heard it from older, well, 40s women where their training isn't working and they wake up feeling squishy overnight. What should they do? And unfortunately, the answer is not train more and eat less. It's we need to eat more and change our training. And that's a little bit of a mind shift too. So when we start saying, okay, what do we need to do? And I've already talked about, you need to get in the weight room. You need to do resistance training, super, super critical, not only for performance, but for longevity. And we have to be very on to when we're eating and what we're eating. We need to increase our protein intake across the board because we're always in a somewhat breakdown state. Um, And if we have enough circulating amino acids, not only are we getting the signaling for lean mass development and keeping lean mass, but we also have enough for neurotransmitters so that we can have a handle on mood and mood swings. And then we also have to look at the carbohydrates that we're eating. So we want to make sure that we have more of the fruit and veg type stuff. If we are cocoa puff cereal type people, then have that after training, maybe with um, an extra bit of, of protein so that you are refilling the muscle when you've had the signaling to be able to pull the carbohydrate in without insulin. So when we look at what we're doing, we're doing the polarized training, so more high intensity, less volume, eating 
in and around training, then this will attenuate those body composition changes. And we're already in the habit of that kind of training and eating so that when we actually hit postmenopause, it's not a change up of everything when our body is not that resilient to stress. So making the changes now when you start seeing or feeling differences is really imperative in order to have a performance lifestyle as you keep going. And in our last recording session, you said that uh, it was also important for men to get in the the gym and do that heavy resistance training. Exactly. And part of it is when we look at um, men and aging as well, we have that anabolic resistance, we lose our power, we lose our speed. And if we're looking at maintaining the performance lifestyle for men, you want to have that structural integrity. You want to have the posture strength. You want to have the glute and hamstring strength, core strength. And Doing the, you know, the 10 to 12 reps or the hypertrophy training is not what we're after. That's not going to give you the strength to be able to have functional movement. So you do want to lift heavy. Men, yes, you can put on bulk pretty well. But if you're also running, then you're not going to become Arnold Schwarzenegger back in the day of steroids. You're actually going to get strong and it's going to come through in your running as having less running injuries you're going to not have that Ironman shuffle and long distance running because you're going to have the posture strength to be able to maintain that load as you're running. I like the term that you've been using performance lifestyle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's cool. You can use it. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to trademark it. <laughs> no, no. But it gives, I mean, that's what we're about, right? How do we maintain our own performance potential as we age and yes. whatever that is? So it is performance lifestyle. Another thing you said in our last interview is uh, the different ways that people in the East uh, view aging versus we in the West. Yes. So if we're talking about menopause and aging, right, and I can use the whale analogy again, too, if you want me to. Yeah, that was good. uh, (laughs) I'll hold on to that one. It's a sociocultural shift. So when we are in the States or Western society, and like I say, you see someone like Tom Cruise, who rocks up and is a star in a movie, his co-star age never changes, even though he gets older. But when you start seeing someone like um, Courtney Cox or Helen Mirren or Emma Thompson, like they're aging and their co-stars are not getting younger. They're also aging. And you'll see that the women have to look perfect. I think after our last interview, I was watching Graham Norton, um, comedian from the UK, and he had Courtney Cox, he had Minnie Driver, and he had two other guys on there. And I was looking at them, both Courtney Cox and Minnie Driver had had their faces done, like Botox, no wrinkles, everything. And they're both in their 50s, right? So they looked pristine. And the men, you could see the wrinkles, they weren't that pristine. And they were also in their 50s. And it's like, this is a perfect example of what I mean. Like aging is not appropriate for women in Western society. But when we switch cultures and we start looking, there isn't a word for hot flashes in Japanese because it's just part of aging. It's like you hit perimenopause, you hit menopause, and now it's a sudden relief of now I'm the age, I'm the wiser one, I'm the one who has the experience, and I don't have to worry about reproduction. Like it's a whole new chapter and it's blessed and it's everyone embraces it. The older individual in those societies is always the wise one and the one you look up to and the one you respect. But in Western society, we don't see that because we're so afraid of aging. And the whale analogy was one when they're watching Blue Planet, my kid, because she likes to watch it. And they're talking (laughs) about the whale pods and the oldest member of the pod that's a leader is the oldest female whale who is not reproductive. So it's like the menopausal whale becomes the leader of the pod because she has all the experience and knows where the danger is and can protect and isn't aggressive with other males like you have with older men or older males and younger males. So she becomes the protector and the leader of the pod. So it's like, we need to look at being like whales. We need to look at Eastern society and really embrace the idea of aging as not being the end of life, but being a brand new chapter to have freedom, to be who we are, to um, have the wisdom to go, I'm too old for that because I've done it before. I don't have to do it again and lead by example, right? So it's that mind shift that I'm really trying to push as well. So thanks for bringing that up. I forgot to say that. No, thank you. I love it. (laughs) 
Well, let's let's tell people about uh, the new book coming out. Oh. Yes. Oh, exciting. I'm so excited. It's been two years, delayed publications, but May 17th, we have Next Level that's coming out and you can pre-order it now, but it's all about peri and postmenopause, how to train, what the, you know, the differences between hormone replacement therapy and alternative therapies, Um, pelvic floor stuff's covered in there, strength exercises are covered in there, how to eat, what to do, how to put training together. So it's like Roar, but for the 40 plus set. I love it. I'm going to go pre-order it for sure. Oh, thanks. So We're going to fly to New Zealand and have you autograph it. <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe you'll be to the States eventually by then. <laughs> I know. I actually get to come back to San Francisco on the 27th of March this year. That's so so exciting. That's, that's after how many days of lockdown? Close to 1,000. Oh. <laughs> wow. It's been a very long time. So I think I'll cry yeah. when I my feet hit the ground in the San Francisco terminal. If you see some crazy blonde woman walking around in big tears screaming, yay, you know it's me. <laughs> <laughs> so where, where can we send people to learn more about you and pre-order the book? So you can go to the website, drstacysims.com, and it talks about all of our courses. It talks about the book. Um, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Dr. Stacy Sims, and we'll have more on the pre-release and our book launch. Um, we're having a book launch actually in Boulder and yeah, keep track of all the cool upcoming things that we're doing. Love it. Thanks again for being on the podcast, Stacy, and, uh, sharing all the knowledge with our audience. I know people are going to love this. Yes. The first time we had you on, people were just going crazy for it. So mm-hmm. awesome. thanks again. <laughs> well, thanks for having me back. It's always fun to chat. All right. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Big thanks to Stacy for coming back on the MTA podcast. Always fun to speak with her. Yeah. And thanks to Athletic Greens, makers of AG1 for sponsoring the podcast. We take it every day, plus everywhere we go. Their travel packs come in really handy. In fact, you can get five free travel packs with your first purchase if you use our link, athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA. You'll also get a one-year supply of vitamin D. A lot of people don't get enough vitamin D. That's right. And vitamin D is well known to be a supplement that's very important for healthy immune function. AG1 is a category leading superfood product. It brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition. Get it all in one tasty scoop. Fill in the nutritional gaps in your diet and aid your gut health. Stacey Sims was talking about those gut bugs. I'm guessing that's what that is. Yeah, your intestinal microbiome is very important. Athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA. So before we wrap this episode up, we have a thought to leave you with. And the thought is, the harder you work, the sweeter the accomplishment. It's a simple thought. That's right. We were actually talking with an acquaintance at church recently, and we were congratulating her on running her first marathon. And to top it off, she had qualified for Boston by three minutes in her first marathon. And we were kind of talking about her chances of doing Boston 2023. And then she made this statement. She's like, yeah, I don't know if I'll do it. I'm not sure I want to train for another marathon after Marine Corps this fall. And just her ambivalence about running Boston really made me pause. Now, I know that running Boston is not for everyone. It's just not on the radar for some marathoners. But it made me think that it's often the case that the harder you have to work for something, the sweeter the accomplishment. Obviously, it would be amazing to Boston qualify at your first marathon, but that's really not the reality for most people. Now, I don't really consider myself to be a naturally talented distance runner. I struggled with injury and setbacks like most runners do, and I didn't BQ for the first time until my 25th marathon. But you weren't trying at every race. Well, obviously at every race, yeah, you you have to have different goals for different races. But I was actively working on getting my time down yeah. during a lot of those marathons. And actually, it happened when I wasn't specifically targeting a BQ. I was kind of just doing like a, a tune-up race to see how my fitness was for my goal marathon that was in about three months. And then I went through a series of setbacks, and I didn't Boston qualify for the second time until my 58th marathon. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I think, you know, some people may look and be like, oh, she's run lots of marathons and it just comes easy for her. But that's not the case. So I think I just wanted to encourage people that if you've been working hard toward a goal to keep on keeping on, your breakthrough may just be around the next corner. 
And the fact that you had to struggle so hard and overcome many challenges will make you appreciate the accomplishment so much more. Boston is so far off my radar. (laughs) I'm going to have to run it for charity. My fastest marathon time, it was sub four. I forget the exact time, like, you know, 3.55 or something. But at the age I was at, that was still an hour slower than what it would take to qualify for Boston. I couldn't imagine running an hour faster than that. That's right. But you haven't specifically trained to run a Boston qualifier. I mean, you haven't put in the work. No, that doesn't sound like fun. And I'm not saying that it's everyone's goal to put in the work to run a Boston qualifier. But for those people who are putting in the work and who are training and trying and that's on their radar, that's kind of what I want to encourage you is just to keep on keeping on because you never know what you're going to accomplish along the way. And the more you struggle to get there and the longer it takes, just the sweeter it'll be when you finally reach the goal. That's what you're saying. That's right. And it could be for you uh, listening, it could be running your first marathon. Maybe you've made a couple attempts already, but it didn't work out. Or it could be running you know, that PR, whether it's a sub five hour marathon or a sub four hour marathon, or maybe your first 50K. Don't get discouraged if it doesn't happen right away. Like Angie said, it took her 25 marathons to earn her BQ. She was ready to give up at 24. And I'm like, you know, Angie, just, just give it one more. <laughs> Don't quite remember it that way. but. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for being a listener. If we can help you in any way, please email us. We have a contact form on our website. Love hearing from you. Until next time, stay safe out there. And remember, you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Right on my way.